Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontefract. Today in the house, wow, I don't know if you say luminary or awesome or it's my insincere privilege, but Sally Helgeson. Sally, internationally best-selling author, speaker, and leadership coach. She's been inducted, a goal of mine, into the Thinkers 50 Hall of Fame, which honors those whose ideas have shaped the field of leadership worldwide. She's also ranked number three among the world's thought leaders by Global Gurus. Her latest book, which we'll talk to in length today, Rising Together, How We Can Bridge Divides and Cause Create, sorry, a More Inclusive Workplace, offers practical ways to build more inclusive relationships, teams, and workplaces. Of course, because it's Sally, it soared to Amazon's number one top seller in its field in the first week of publication. Rising Together builds on Sally's remarkable success with How Women Rise, co-authored with legendary executive coach Marshall Goldsmith, which examines the behaviors most likely to get in the way of successful women as they move forward in their careers. The rights of that book have been sold in over 23 languages. Other books of Sally's, uh, a limited few because we can't get to all of them, The Female Advantage, Thriving in 24-7, and one of my faves, The Web of Inclusion, a new architecture for building great organizations. For over 30 years, Sally's delivered workshops and keynotes for companies, partnership firms, and associations working in 37 different countries around the world. Sally, so great to see you. Thanks for doing this. Okay, let's get to it. Um, you point out in Rising Together that there are eight common triggers that undermine our ability to connect with people whose, uh, as you say, whose history and values may be different from our own. Now, you also state that these are everyday triggers and that they're the prime reason men and women end up retreating to what you call gender silos, narrowing their experience and depriving themselves of useful connections. So before we get into some of the triggers, because I'm fascinated by all of them, but we're going to get to four today, based on your experience over the last 30 odd years, have you noticed any improvement on the so-called gender silo file? We're going to start there because of your vast and rich experience. Oh, yes, definitely, Dan. I mean, everything has gotten, it's been continuous improvement, not always in the public or political sphere, but continuous improvement in organizations. Women have become more integrated into the fabric of organizations. They have become far more confident in their own ability to contribute, especially as leaders. Uh, they have greater solidarity with one another. They used to, you know, it used to be sort of the queen bee uh, syndrome that prevailed mm. certainly in the 80s and, and earlier in the 90s. Uh, so all the, and men have of course become much more uh, comfortable with the idea of being allies and working with women and working for women and and having women work for them. So those things were, I started out, I, I, I got really started in organizations in the, well, with this phase of my career, at least in the late 80s. And it was it was not like it is now. It wasn't like the madman era where I really did get started in my career back in the 60s in the ad biz, but uh, it, 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 was, it was challenging enough. Well, that's good to hear. I'm assuming then there's still a gap and there's a ways to go, hence something like rising together. So let's get into some of the triggers. There's eight, but four in particular I'd like to talk about. Let's start with the first, managing perceptions and sort of the subtitle to that 
particular trigger, we rise together by neither over nor under managing what others think. So you point out, Sally, in the book that so the concept of a double bind is really critical and important. A damned if you do, damned if you don't trap that offers really no intuitive way uh, out for many people who are not like me, a white middle-aged male often. And you say women as well as people of color are likely to criticize for behaviors that are routinely accepted from men in, you know, they're the dominant group. So What's at the core of managing perceptions and really from a both sides perspective, what are we doing right and what do we need to improve upon? Well, I think it's it's it, it is both sides. We'll talk in a moment about men, but uh, but for women and for people of color, especially, and that includes men of women, men and women, also, you know, people who are gay, et cetera, whatever, mm-hmm. whoever is outside the dominant leadership mainstream often finds themselves being criticized for things that, you know, you're too aggressive, uh, you know, you shouldn't have spoken up, you're you're very assertive, you know, young lady, that kind of stuff. I mean, I've heard that a lot. The boss, uh, the bossy girl, right? You're a bossy girl. You're a bossy girl, you're a mean girl, yeah. whatever. Uh, and then, you know, with people of color, it's often, well, you seem angry, you know, when they just simply voiced an opinion without, uh, you know, seeming to have some heft behind it. So, so what because of those because of those criticisms uh, we often get overly invested in trying to manage people's perceptions that and I'll, I'll tell you how i know this when i do women's leadership programs the single most common question i get is this how can i bring recognition to my contributions and position myself as a leader without anybody thinking that I'm too aggressive, too ambitious, uh, you know, too assertive, et cetera. Here's the thing, you can't. You can't manage other people's perceptions to that extent. Maybe that, maybe a person is uncomfortable with having a woman in that role. Maybe you remind him of his wife or his (laughs) ex-wife, maybe, uh, you know, you don't know what's going on in that person's mind. So what you don't want to do is privilege managing what people think of you. Look, this question is phrased that anybody thinks I'm this. You can't do that. Mm. So what you want to do is not privilege trying to manage people's perceptions, trying to second guess them uh, over being clear about what you're contributing, what you want to achieve, where you think your talents lie, et cetera. That, that is what you want to privilege. And then managing perceptions to the extent that you're able to do it, that is less important than that. There's something that we often forget in terms of managing perceptions. And again, I learned this early in my career, which is that people get used to you and their opinion changes. We've all had that. I mean, I've met people I thought, mm, I'm not sure I like that person. Right. And, you know, three months later, oh, God, I was so wrong about so-and-so. They're, they're wonderful. We forget that people, as they get more exposed to us, most people, unless they're very invested in an ideological point of view, will change their mind. And I tell the story in the book, uh, 
which is, was one of the things that helped me understand that when I was very young and fairly, you know, the only woman in the room with a company I was working for in the 1980s. I was in a meeting with a lot of senior men and I had an idea. So I spoke up. I said, you know, I think a good way of handling that would be whatever. I didn't go on and on. I just suggested it, said why I thought it would be a good idea. Absolute silence. No one picked up on it. Meeting went on. And afterwards, my boss's boss came up behind me and said, you know, how do you phrase it? You know, well, you certainly aren't afraid of expressing your opinion. And I don't know, for whatever reason, I just said, no, I'm not. I didn't say, oh, I'm so sorry, or mm. I wasn't defensive, like I have every right to. I I just said, no, I'm not. And and then he walked away like, oh, what's wrong with this woman? <laughs> I thought I was dead in the water there. You know, I defended my boss's boss. Nothing happened. And maybe six weeks later, two months later, I overheard him talking to a colleague and he was saying, you know what I like about Sally is she's not afraid to say what she thinks. So he got used to me and his opinion moderated. And when we swoop in, it's like being a helicopter parent. We don't give mm. the kid a chance to develop. Right. Um, when we swoop in and try to, uh, well, I've got to make sure so-and-so, oh, he thinks I'm too assertive. Uh, how can I change that opinion? When we do that, we really undermine other people's ability to um, to learn to get a real understanding of what we can contribute. So this is very, very common. Again, you know, when I coach um, African-American women in particular, you know, how can I make sure that I don't am not perceived as an angry black woman? Guess what? There are probably some people who are going to perceive you as angry because they're frightened of black people. You know, they don't have much exposure, their you know, background or their origin or what they listen to on the news uh, convinces them that they have reason to be afraid. And so they're reacting on that, <clears throat> excuse me. And you can't control that. So mm -hmm. all you can do is be very clear about what you're doing. You know, you might ask a colleague, do I seem angry? You know, I'm trying to be, you know, just say what I think. No, you, you sound fine. Mm -hmm. so you want to check it that way. But it, it, it's really, it keeps us stuck and reluctant to, um, to go for what we want and claim our achievements. It brings up the point littered throughout the book, of course, you, you speak to and provide examples of uh, many different cognitive biases that we have uh, on both sides, but also, of course, lots in the leadership space. And it sort of um, now segues nicely into another of the triggers. Uh, what are you trying to say? And in this sort of the subtitle is we rise together by appreciating and learning from one another's communication styles. But in within that particular trigger, you make a point which is very good to me because it's something I've uh, prescribed to for many years. And that is differentiating one's authentic self with their best self. So Sally, why should we, we be on the kind of lookout for this distinction and what must we do to appreciate and kind of learn from one another's communication styles with that in mind and the point about those cognitive biases? Well, you know, I've noticed this, there's been so much encouragement of people 
to bring your authentic self to work. Now, I understand it. It's important. And that a lot of people, you know, this would be true for women, certainly true for people of color, <clears throat> but particularly for, for people who are gay or have a different sexual orientation, where they felt like they could not be who they actually were at work. And yeah. that's very painful and it's very limiting. So in regard to that, the idea of being authentic is, of course, very important. It helps us to connect, but it needs to be balanced with professionalism. Mm -hmm. And uh, authenticity is too often used also as an excuse for cognitive biases. You know, well, I'm just telling it like it is, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, this is my point of view and it's not helpful. It's not helpful to others. It can be hurtful to others. It doesn't further the conversation. So we want to balance authenticity with professionalism. And I think one of the ways we want to do that is how do we represent our best self? Now, Dan, this plays out in particular with communications, which is this, this chapter on, uh, this trigger chapter on what are you trying to say? Plays out very strongly in terms of communications because often we feel that uh, a, a speaking style, for example, that isn't as effective as it could be mm. is just us. That's who we are. That's how we are. And that doesn't give us much of an incentive to begin to think, okay, people are really, there's a big diversity of people that I'm communicating with in this organization. Age is a big factor here. Mm big factor um, around age. So I'm communicating with a diversity of people. So how can I make sure that I am as clear as possible and that I'm representing myself in the best possible way that, that helps me build the alliances I need, helps other people get the resources they want? So the authenticity can keep us stuck there. Well, I'm just, I just talk the way I talk. You know, I, uh, I, I'm not changing it for anybody. I, I've worked with this a lot um, with women because of the, bi the business of being concise. You know, the, mm -hmm. there are a, a lot of times in organizations, men have a fairly short attention span. <laughs> in my book, uh, The Female Vision, I looked at, you know, how, what we perceive, what we notice shapes how we speak, how we communicate, how we see the world. And uh, one of the things I found is that women tend to notice a lot of things at the same time, whereas men tend to notice, this is of course not true for all women and men, but in general, and functional MRIs show this, that women uh, tend to notice a lot. So they will often in their communication offer a lot of background stuff. Here's how I got to this idea. And then I noticed, and then I saw. And if they're communicating with in a culture where there's a very short attention span, a lot of men who are very laser focused noticers, as opposed to having the, the highly active radar that a lot of women have, then uh, they're not as effective as they could be. So mm -hmm. I've worked with women on this and coached them and they, you know, they'll always say, well, why should I adapt to a male, um, a male model in terms of communication? It's not what I'm advocating. What mm -hmm. I'm advocating is showing up in the best way that you can not getting overly invested in authenticity or what our, 
a wonderful colleague, Marshall Goldsmith, calls an excessive need to be me. <laughs> Love <Yeah. that> <laughs> uh, not getting overly invested in that, but really, um, uh, you know, how do I show up in the best possible way and not let my commitment to authenticity undermine my effectiveness in terms of communication. This is also rampant uh, when it comes to differences in age. I really love it because it does speak to the point that leaders ought to be helping their team members just be their best, not necessarily, you know, strive for authenticity. So I couldn't tell you how much I loved it when I came across the trigger. The third of four I want to get to is another trigger, the grapevine and the network. And the subheadline here is we rise together by knowing how to develop, extend and leverage our networks. And so you make a really great metaphorical distinction between the addiction and the consequences of the grapevine, the metaphor, versus the creation of a healthy network. So tell us what's that distinction and why is it so important to erase one of those triggers going forward? Yeah, uh, in, in the way I'm defining it, a network or a healthy network mm -hmm. is a network that in which people really are a resource uh, and provide help for one another. They help one another be more visible. They shine the spotlight on one another. They help one another get promotions or position themselves well. So this sounds a lot like the old boys network. Yeah, really OBNs, OBNs, right? Yeah. You know, it, it's strength, it's strong point, and you know, it continues certainly in some organizations, is that it really helped the people within it to rise and reach their full potential and sometimes go well beyond what their potential was. But its weakness was its exclusivity. So people who have been excluded from those kinds of networks often end up by default building networks that are far less functional, which I call grapevines, which kind of serve as an information sharing resource, which is important, not diminishing the value of that, mm -hmm. which give them relationships that often provide an opportunity for complaint. And I've seen this because I was there in the very early days, for example, of women's networks or of black employee networks in organizations. And the people felt so shut out that their networks primarily serve them as a place to vent, you know, about their experiences and how awful this had been and why they got shot out of this and how they were actually qualified for this position, but this other person got it, which, you know, is, it's good to have a place to vent and, you know, enlist um, allies, but we, we don't want it to stop there. We need to be able to take action. So one of the things that I, so, so two things I advocate. First of all, really to examine, it, are the groups that you're part of healthy networks or are they grapevines that may serve you in a certain way, but don't really move you or the other people in them forward? And the women and black employees networks, all of the networks have changed tremendously within organizations and they really do serve now much more as a resource to help their members develop and, and, and claim higher positions. But you wanna ask for yourself, now is, my, is this a healthy network or is this a grapevine? Are we mostly complaining? And if we're mostly complaining, how do we turn this ship around 
and help our grapevine become a healthy network. And it is usually by adapting the ideas of leverage so that we help one another. I give a, a, a wonderful example in the book, the Alori Sisterhood. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was a group of Black female political operatives in New York State who had been shut out of the dominant, you know, um, uh, Black ne network of Black political operatives, which was all men. They were actually shut out of their meetings. So they decided to form their own network. And at first, it was a source of emotional support and solace and also, you know, a place to vent about their frustrations. They did not feel like they were anywhere near to achieving their potential. But what they did was they decided to learn from the Old Boys Network and start promoting one another, start mm -hmm. recommending one another. Oh, I saw a job opening for this. You'd be perfect. I know so-and-so. Can I get them to write you a recommendation? Oh, I'm nominating you for this award for the work you did for so-and-so. That kind of thing. They started doing that. It transformed their careers. As they said, we went to door knockers to essential um, individuals. Corinne uh, uh, St. Pierre, who's the, the uh, Biden communications chief, the White House communications chief was part of that. So they really invested in one another's careers. And that's how you know you're part of a healthy network. So let's everybody learn from how the old boys network did things in order to make our own networks, which are not exclusive in the way the Old Boys Network traditionally has been, as effective as the Old Boys Network. Well, and even so, I mean, we could look from uh, lyric history, and I heard it through the grapevine isn't exactly a, a nurturing <laughs> way in which to build a network, is it? <laughs> you got it. It's my, one of the reasons I, I chose that. Um, that chose that term. I grew up in Michigan, so you know <laughs> those, that that uh, Detroit Motown shaped my shaped my life. There you are, excellent. Along with football and basketball. <laughs> uh, okay, so the fourth I want to get to, and then I've got uh, you know two more other questions to close us off here. It's uh, it's called "That's Not Funny." We rise together by getting humor right, and so I think I'm kind of funny, Sally. Uh, but mostly because I'm Canadian, I'm self-deprecating. So everything I do, I make fun of myself. But you write here in the book, which is really fascinating. Today, many jokes have become problematic, serving as flashpoints or ways to distinguish who understands that the culture and the rules are changing and who does not. So you point out that situational awareness is actually also key to, for us requiring a story to ask whether this is the right time and place for that humorous observation. So in this case, what is it that leaders, team members, both of us should be doing to either be funny, humorous, or even just lighthearted in our various interactions and communications? Well, self-deprecation works very well. <laughs> and it, but it particularly works well if you're at a position of influ influence, authority, and power. It's less fruitful or useful if you're early in your career, because mm. it can be seen as, you know, that self-deprecation, um, you know, nobody wants to hear you put yourself down. So it doesn't, uh, it doesn't serve you well. And that's an important distinction, I think, although self-deprecation is extremely successful 
with anybody in a leadership or senior position. Um, but but the you know what I became aware of is there's a problematic nature of jokes. So the people who rely on jokes for humor rather than situational humor, rather than a commentary that's not de de demeaning to other people uh, in, in response to a situation. But the joke thing, you know, did you hear the one about that sort of deal? Jokes are inherently transgressive. They yeah. rely for their humor upon a juxtaposition that's surprising and transgress transgressive. And the funniest jokes are usually the ones that are most transgressive because their juxtapositions are so surprising. Right. You think they're going in one air, one direction, they go in another direction, which is why so much humor is, you know, ethnic jokes, et cetera. Well, this stuff, when I was starting out, when I was a speechwriter, which was in the 1980s, this was, you know, considered almost essential for executives to have a, a good, uh, you know, good battery of jokes to tell. And when I was a speechwriter, I would get calls when I was when we were at a conference in Palm Springs. Oh, so and so wants three jokes by tomorrow morning. You know, and and what I always felt was the guys I was writing for, they were they felt that if they told a couple jokes in the beginning, then they could be as boring as they wanted yeah. to be. So <laughs> it was really very segmenting. So jokes are are increasingly problematic. And people who use them um, are used to relying on them for humor often get pushback and they get pushback from women or, you know, people of color, you know, gay people, et cetera, because of that transgressive nature. So one of the things I was talking about there is, is it's important to stop equating jokes with humor. A lot of times people who continue to tell jokes uh, well, I'm sorry if that offended anybody. Okay, fine. That's not effective, uh, especially if you continue to to use it and do yeah. it. Uh, it's just it's just kind of a bad idea. So developing that situational awareness, finding the humor and the commonalities, is the best approach uh, to humor. And it's very important that we do that because we do not want to lose humor in the workplace. We really do not. It is one of the most effective ways to bond, to relieve tension, and to bring enjoyment into our work. We want that that rich sense of humor without risking the transgression that is, is vested in many jokes and a lot of sort of witty, sarcastic commentary that no longer has, a, has any business in the workplace. Yeah. And some of those jokes, whether they're uh, meaningfully or unmeaningfully sexist, racist, uh, geographic in nature, uh, end up as being microaggressions unknowingly and unwittingly creating this angst within the population of the team members or whoever was in the audience. It's like, I know that might have not been intended, but if you had to just stop and thought through with your empathy, ideally, and some of the other points that you make in the book, that you you know you can harm more than you can uh, um, uh, create a, a situation whereby people feel humored by your humor. That's where I, I I took great delight in seeing you recognize that we, we as leaders have to do a much better job of being proactive and thinking through if quote that humor or that joke will land. Like your golf examples, for example, in the book, it's just like come on day and age perhaps in the 80s that was okay 
but let's yeah. let's not do the heart attack joke uh, on the third hole anymore of a golf joke. Let's just stop all of that, right? It's just insane. Okay, my uh, my yeah, penultimate. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. No, that's okay. My my penultimate sort of area of focus for you is the suggestion, which I think is just delightful, uh, about the informal enlistment of how we must become active enlisters. So can you tell us a little bit about what informal enlistment and becoming an active enlister is, Sally? And then we'll ask you one final question. Sure. You know, this this point of people talk about how do I build allies? One of the most effective ways to, to build allies is to ask people what they think about something you're doing, about something you're trying to get better at, at something you may have had negative feedback on. And what we were just talking about is a very good example. Uh, say you, you know, you have a funny story that you think is funny. Well, don't just think it through yourself, ask someone, you know, if it, if it involves a woman, you know, go up to a female colleague and say, you know, I think this story is funny. I was thinking of telling it to open this meeting, but I'm not sure I'd love to get your thoughts about it. Get that from a couple people, test it out. It's, it's, or if we're trying to get better at something, say, you know, we've had feedback that we talk, that we talk over people in meetings. Say we've had feedback that, that the way in which we speak is not resonant for the younger people in our organization, whatever that is. Or if we just even, we don't need feedback. We get a perception. Mm. I'm not sure the younger people are really hearing that. Um, then we want to ask, you know, we want to ask those people. We don't want to just try to figure it out on our own. And it's very, um, I learned this with, with, uh, with How Women Rise. It's very disarming to people to ask them to help you get better at something. Very disarming. Uh, most people are to some degree flattered. Uh, we used to recommend it a lot with women who had been told that they la that they weren't very concise. Uh, you, you know, we, we were talking about before with that, you know, broad spectrum notice, that mm. radar spanning room and, and a lack of concision. Rather than trying to figure it out, you know, ask somebody, you know, I, I've, I've had some feedback that, or I've gotten the feeling that I'm, I'm not concise enough in how I present in meetings. I'd like to get better at it. You're really good at it. Is there anything you do? Is there any kind of preparation you go through that could be helpful information to me? I'd really appreciate it. So there you are, you're building your alliances based upon asking people for little tiny micro ways of helping. And it's it's a really effective way of doing it. And I call the process informal enlistment. It's a kind of on the spot or on the fly peer coaching as well. And, um, and, and the more you can get active at it, if you're a perfectionist, it takes, you know, it makes it impossible for you to pretend you're being perfect. Whatever it is, it's really, it's really a problem solver that that helps in many, many ways. I love it. Something we all could use for certain. Okay, my last question for you, Sally, uh, perhaps is a bit personal. Uh, a couple of years ago, somehow I got thrown into by the grace of Alan Mulally, the 100 Coaches Group, and have been learning from yourself and others throughout the past two years. 
extraordinarily well. And I, I thank Alan for that. You have had a lifelong, it seems, relationship with the founder of 100 Coaches, which of course is Marshall Goldsmith, and you've dedicated the book to this legendary man. So I was curious, uh, what has Marshall meant to you in that partnership and friendship uh, over the years? Well, Marshall really has been sort of essential to uh, the the development of uh, how people perceive me in the marketplace. I'm a writer. That's what I'm comfortable with. I'm comfortable, you know, writing books and working with words. And I always, you know, I came from a world where the idea was, you know, if you write a good book, people will read it. Well, it's not <laughs> always necessarily true. I had exposure to Marshall uh, fairly early on. It was uh, when the Web of Inclusion came out and I'd been asked to give the keynote at a Drucker Foundation event that was out in in um, in the San Diego area where Marshall lived at that time. And he invited me to, he invited all of us, everybody at the whole conference, which filled up the 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 big old corner. Sounds, sounds like Coronado. Marshall, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he invited us all to his house one night. And afterwards, he called me about a, a couple months afterwards, he called me and said, you know, I'm starting a group called the Learning Network. I've been inspired by the Renaissance Weekends. I want to bring together people in our field, most of whom work alone, so we don't have a natural colleague network. And I would like you to be part of it. This was in 1995. So I said, I'd love it, because in fact, I felt like I was starving for colleagues. You know, I was going around giving keynotes, working with people who got to work with each other. And then I was flying away and coming home. And that was the rhythm. So I, was, I jumped at the chance to develop colleagues. That group is called the Learning Network. It was a very small group, unlike 100 coaches. We made an early decision not to expand it because we felt we had very intimate conversations. Um, unfortunately, what it meant was the group got smaller and smaller as we got older and older and people died. So that's <laughs> actually an argument against that. Uh, but we are celebrating because it got postponed our 25th anniversary. Uh. Now, so the learning network in a way was a forerunner of a hundred coaches. It it didn't fulfill Marshall's vision necessarily as something that would, you know, where we would actively promote one another's careers. Although we did, it became a sort of a network of support and recognition and a place where we could really speak about what was going on in our lives. And I think that was spurred by the participation of the great Bill Bridges, who mm. was a, a founding member and who was going through some very difficult times and shared them in, in a way of almost breathtaking vulnerability. And that shaped the group and going through Bill's experience and his illness was, was very profound. So it, it, it operated differently. The hundred coaches to me exemplifies a healthy network. And this is what Marshall has been aiming at and trying to create. Of course, Marshall was also instrumental uh, for me, even though I'd written books and had some very successful books like The Female Advantage and Web of Inclusion, and sort of bumping me up in terms of visibility, 
by uh, accepting the suggestion that we collaborate on How Women Rise and then pouring himself fully and wholeheartedly into the promotion and making that book the fen global phenomenon it's mm -hmm. become. So so that was that was another aspect of it. And, uh, you know, I was influenced by what got you here won't get you there. But I recognize that the habits and behaviors he focuses on in that book, they can serve you well early, but not as you move into leadership, were not necessarily the habits that were holding women back, like <laughs> learn to apologize or, you know, don't always talk about how great you are. No, that's, that's <laughs> not so, so that's why I suggested to him, you know, that we collaborate on this book that that took that model, but looked specifically at women. And what was really interesting, Dan, is when I made that proposal to him, I was very reluctant to do it because I thought he was going to think, see, this is really about leveraging. This is a great story about leveraging. I assumed that what Marshall would think was, oh, I see. Okay, she's trying to build on my 1.5 LinkedIn followers, <laughs> 1.5 million yeah. LinkedIn followers. Yeah. Oh, I see. She's trying to, you know, I wrote a New York Times bestseller, so she's trying to ride on my coattails. It wasn't what he thought at all. What he said was, what a great idea. I've had feedback from women that they don't identify with these behaviors. And also more and more of my audiences, there are more and more women in them. And I need credibility with women. And I think working with you would give me a lot of credibility with women. So this was a very good, um, very good lesson about uh, leveraging and also about informal enlistment uh, that, you know, ask for what you want. It may be serving what other people are looking for as well. An incredible life and career professional lesson. Uh, thank you so much for that insight and vulnerability yourself for sort of explaining the history and just the rapport and love, obviously, that you have uh, for, for Mr. Goldsmith. Uh, of note, just before I ask you this final question where we can learn more about you, you didn't title the book Rising Up, which I appreciated. You titled it Rising Together. You could most easily title that rising up, i.e. a way in which for us all to rise up. But rising together suggests that we are equals. We're just human to human, trying to make a difference in each other's lives, hopefully for the better. How we can bridge divides and create a more inclusive workplace is just a brilliant subtitle as well. So, Sally, where can we find more about you and the book? Well, uh, the book is everywhere, you know, any any place you want to go you can go to Amazon, you want to go to Barnes and Noble, you want to go to your bookstore. Um, about me, uh, my website, sallyhelgeson.com, it has a contact button. And I got, you know, multiple emails a day through that contact button, and I respond to them. And I am on LinkedIn and Twitter. And I also have a Substack newsletter uh called all rise uh and uh that comes out every wednesday and is also posted after it goes live on substack uh and there's a of course a connect button on, on my website uh it it goes live on uh, linkedin right after it's posted on substack so lots of ways to get in touch with me amazing well this has just been a true honor and privilege 
can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk to me about such a wonderful book, Rising Together. And everything that you've done in your career is just one awesomeness point after another. Thank you for doing what you do to leave this world a better place for for those that are in leadership and non-leadership roles, because uh, you're making such a dent and uh, you certainly have impacted many people for the better. Thank you, Sally. Thank you, Dan. I really enjoyed our conversation together. Amazing. Okay, folks, that was another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontefract, the one, the only Sally Helgeson with Rising Together, how we can bridge divides and create a more inclusive workplace. Take care, everyone.